childhood. All of us have had one, right? We are all from some family somewhere and have all been shaped by those family dynamics and by the ethos of that specific place. Interestingly, this is even true of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? That in the incarnation, Jesus did not just appear fully grown and just drop out of the sky like Arnold in the Terminator. No, Christ was sent into this world, into a home. He was born as a baby to be raised by a dad and a mom alongside brothers and we're pretty sure sisters. Jesus grew up running the streets of a neighborhood called Nazareth on the wrong side of the tracks in a community of messy and imperfect first century people. And all of those experiences, his childhood, shaped his character and his self-understanding and helped prepare him to be who he was called to be. It's actually the same for all of us. Any good counselor or therapist will tell you right away, hey, there is no way to make sense of who we are without tracing back to where we came from, to what our childhood was like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, when I say that, I, I wanna make sure also to say that our childhoods, whatever they were like, as influential as they were, are never to be seen as curses that have been spoken over us and get to dictate or handcuff our futures. No. We are all moral agents who can change, who can take the good and throw out the bad, and by God's grace, even heal from the ugly. Another way to say that is to say that the gospel frees us to not see our backstories as prisons, but as providences of God, who gives us our dads and our moms and our childhoods to ready us to step into the story that he intends to tell through us. For my dad, it was growing up among all the joys and the dysfunctions of a small home in a little neighborhood a couple of miles outside of New York City. Queens, New York in the 40s and the 50s was a really good time and place to grow up. World War II was over and America, especially her big cities, especially the Big Apple, New York City, was booming in every way. And into that post-war scene, a gangly little kid was born, a baby boomer through and through. I asked my dad about some of his earliest childhood memories in Queens. At the time of my birth, my dad was in Italy okay. in World War II and France. And uh, by the time he got home, I was uh, a year old. My brother was three, and my mother took care of us. And then uh, he came home, and the war was over. Right. And uh, I remember my father bought the house for $4,000, and he borrowed $50 off his father. <laughs> and that's how it started. Right now, on the market, would sell for almost $950,000, a huge jump. 
and uh, we grew in a, we had a great neighborhood. Uh, and we had two horse farms on either side of our neighborhood. In Queens. Yes, in Queens, yeah. Tumbleweed and Chick Spa Ranch. They were kind of in competing. We'd come home from school sometimes, and they'd be on our lawn, eating our grass and wow. walking around, not even saddled. They weren't with anybody. And we also had a city of dogs yeah. barking and fighting, and I was always afraid that someone would bite me, and probably did happen. So th that was kind of our neighborhood. Um, in those days, there was a lot of uh, drinking. A lot of the families had alcoholic parents, yeah. including my grandfather, who was a drunk his whole life. Yeah. I remember a time of uh, my dad forbid him do not take your grandchildren in the car, ever. Wow. And one time he caught him and he pulled him out of the car and, and he brought us back home. So he didn't know him too well. And my grandmother was a pre-hippie, like in the 1960s. Flowers, always cleaning, yeah. had one dress on all the time. Right. My mom was great. She had lots of love for us. She cared for us. Um, I was saying that... Uh, when my dad wasn't here, she put us in the carriage and put us in the driveway. And who knows where she went? We cried probably for hours and nobody paid attention. And then she came back. And then, uh, so I could understand being your, your husband in the war, not knowing he returned. You know those stories that everybody loves to tell about walking to school uphill in both directions when they were a kid and having really mean teachers when they were a kid? and this one science project of theirs that was a total fail when they were a kid. Everybody's got them. And my dad has them too. We were a mile away. We had to walk around this large cemetery. I always hoped and dreamt that there would be a door where we started and a door where we could get out. But instead we had to walk all the way around, spring, summer, fall. We never got a ride. Like we have nowadays, all these buses for for special kids and stuff. No, we walked. And um, one of the fun things is my mother would make us lunch right. and these plastic brown bags and she'd put an apple in it, some grapes, a rotten banana. And I remember this horrible tuna fish sandwich, Swiss cheese liverwurst, and she wrapped it up in uh, wax paper. By the time we got three quarters of the school, we threw it in the cemetery. It stunk, it smelt, and we didn't like it. We never told her. How was lunch, Mom? Oh, it was great. Thanks. <laughs> so those trips to school were brutal. Rain, snow. I don't, my mother never gave us gloves. I don't know how we survived it, but we did. But we were kids, so it was, it was easy to struggle through it. So that was our part of growing up. I had a girlfriend called Pat. I don't know whether she liked me, but I liked her. <laughs> and uh, a few times we rode our bike. The problem was we couldn't lock them, and by the time we got out of school, the bike was gone. Sure. So the bikes were always stolen, so we didn't do that. And I remember some teachers, Mr. Halleck, Mr. Owens, and uh, what happened was second, third, fourth, fifth grade, you would get your teacher who you would have, and we would all say, oh, I hope and pray we don't get Mrs. Halleck. She'd pull our ear and slap us, and we couldn't make any noise. And wouldn't you know, I'd had her for three years. 
we made um, projects. One project I made was like a planet on this ply a piece of wood. I was cool. I had copper wires. Had all of the the uh, planets. And all again, I was on my way to school. No one to take us. And it started raining. Right. No protection for. It. By the time I got to school, it was floppy. It was melted. And that project ended up in the same place where the lunches ended up, in the trash barrel. For some reason, for every American kid ever, one of the things that you remember clear as a bell about your childhood was the summertime. The new rhythms, the new friends, the new experiences. And it was no different for my dad. Every summer, for the whole summer, he would get shipped off from Queens into the woods of Long Island to hang out with his grandparents, and he had so many stories to tell. When I was seven to 14, my mother sent me to my grandmother's in Ronkonkoma, Long Island, and I spent the entire summer from late June to early, late August, and my mom and dad would come every other week. They'd drive out. And I spent my whole summer with my grandmother and grandfather. And she was a heavy drinker. And I remember cute stories. We'd go to this bar, and there was an adventure place across the street. And Uncle Herb would say, come back in two hours. I was 11 years old. And then I played miniature golf. And then he says, you ought to help me get grandma in the car. Because she was stone cold drunk. This was five nights a week. We got her in the car. We helped her into the house. And... During the day, she sobered up. Right. So that, and then we spent lots of time at the lake, and all the friends I had were city friends from Bronx, Manhattan, who had summer homes. So we were like city kids on Long Island. Sure. And one interesting thing was in the back, we had a serious Italian family, and they had chickens Three, two, and roosters one. and hens. So it was weekend time, and they took the two top chickens put their head on a log and chopped it off with an axe. Pulled all the feathers out and we all had chicken. <laughs> and cooked it. It was creepy. Two things are true about most neighborhoods that you grow up in. One, there's a lot of kids around. And two, those kids love to find trouble. This was just as true in the late 40s and early 50s in Flushing, New York, and I talked to my dad about what that was like for him. That early part of New York, they were prepared for somewhat of nuclear war because of uh, Japan, and they built these huge storm sewers. They were 20 feet down. You open the sewer cap, and you climb down the side, and they went for miles, almost like a subway system. And we would get down there with flashlights and a stick so we wouldn't slide, and we would walk all over, and we'd keep walking. Then we decided to go up, take a lid off, and see where we were. Might have been in the street. It might have been in someone's front yard. And then we go back. So that was dangerous. There was rats. There was bats. There was also sewage. Don't know why we liked it so much, but it was a different world. So that was a great part of our growing up. Let's go down to the sewers today. There was no snacks. There was no fruit. There was no cell phones. It was just us. No water. No water bottles. Just just us down there. It was one girl, too, Gloria. She was like a boy, you know, like uh, the first name, why, why we name girls tomboys, and she was it. Sure. So those are, those are great days. 
we mostly had boys in our neighborhood. It seemed like after the war, God just blessed many people with more boys. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, seemed like a, a refill. Right. <laughs> anyway, so we had lots of kids. And then we had a new neighborhood coming to the south of us called Southcrest. And uh, there was a territorial war going on there. And I think we were like 11, 12. I know I'm jumping ahead. But we had, we made these dirt bombs and spears and apples and we stored them on the ridge and then they'd come with their assortment of weapons. And it wasn't violent and stuff, but we were just like protecting our turf. And they'd say, ready, set, go. And we'd be throwing them back and forth and sometimes we'd get hit. We wouldn't get hurt. And then, like, later on, we all hugged and said, good fight. <laughs> we'll see you next week. If you know my dad, you know one thing for sure, that he is what they call a car guy. He's probably seriously owned over 150 cars in his life. I remember returning many of them to the dump with him. One time we were in Staten Island when I must have been, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, and we were in a duster, and there was no seatbelts and the, the brakes would just fail on this car. And on the drive over, we careened within an inch of a head-on collision with a fire hydrant. This was my dad, always with his face under the hood of a car. Even now, he's got a 1956 Chevy, if you want to come by and see it. Where did this love come from for the automobile? From his dad. So dad was a car guy. He had a few older Model A's in the 1930s. And then during summer times, we'd get in his car, tie a rope, not even a, a, a hook thing on the back. We'd drive to, again to Long Island, my brother and I, a couple of bucks in our pocket. Dad would find these old cars, buy them, tow them back, bring them to the neighborhood, bring them back to the neighborhood, Pull him in the driveway, and my mother was on the porch and said, Alfred, you're not bringing another car in this garage in the backyard. We already have five of them. So my father ignored her. And then we started taking the fenders off and the engine out, and we learned cars and motors, and we made a better car out of all the pieces. So that went on for years. It probably ended up with about 40 cars. And behind the house was woods. So whatever we didn't want to use, we threw it over the backyard, and we buried it in the woods. <laughs> So that's the days we got involved with cars. Every dad who has ever had a son knows that sometimes you gotta have a straight talk with that boy at different points of his life. This is not abuse, this is not heavy handedness, this is not meddling. This is love. My dad's taking up a trade that he would ply for 40 years is the re direct result of his dad having a conversation like that with him. Okay, I'm out of school. I'm lazy. I don't want to work. My brother's already electrician to my father's union. So he was giving me the eye day after day, and finally he said, uh, Glenn, let's go talk. You're doing nothing. You're just hanging around. You're eating food and taking up space. I got four things for you. I would like to see you go to the post office, take an application, and get a job. Okay. 
I would like to get you into the electrical union, and then you'll have a great trade, you'll make some good money, and you'll be out of the house. (laughs) Third, join the Army. You know, uh, the war's over. There's a nice lull. You'll get a good learn things there, too. Or fourth, if you don't like any of these two, I'm throwing you the hell out of the house. You're eating and taking up space, so you think it over. My choice was to go into the electrical trade. So there it is. That's how my dad got from born to 20 years old, growing up just outside of New York City. What he didn't know then was that he would soon be receiving a letter in the mail from the president of these United States of America that would change his life forever. Thanks for listening to this episode of Yeah, That's My Dad. If you know anyone who would benefit from listening to these stories, it's very easy to get connected. Just send them to cruise.studio backslash dad.